my job is to be smaller than this man. That's what I'm being paid to do is to be smaller. And and I know that I am bigger than this. Like there was something inside me that said I am bigger than what I am doing right now. So in order to do that, I have to leave, even though everyone's saying this is how you get what you want by is through this is through this experience, through this trial of I fire. There was just something in my head that went, you're never going to be bigger than him if you don't leave. Hey, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. And if you're a regular here, welcome back. If you're new, well, welcome to you as well. Every week, I sit across from one of the most influential women from all different industries and talk to her about her life, her career, the tough choices that she's had to make along the way, the trade-offs. These are the questions that I know we're all asking ourselves every single day on our journeys. And I'm talking to her beyond the resume, from decision-making to the trade-offs, the most pivotal moments, the worst advice that she's received along the way. I want all of you to be a fly on the wall in the lives of these incredibly successful women and to be able to absorb some of that knowledge and wisdom that they've had to gain, frankly, through hardship and struggle. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. I'm really excited about today's guest. She is a playwright, screenwriter, and director, and her most recent show just received 13 Emmy nominations. Congratulations. Russian Doll. She co-created the project with Amy Poehler and Natasha Leone. And you've had shows now at this point on literally every network. Oh, God. Pretty much. <laughs> HBO, ABC, NBC, FX, Netflix, Bachelorette. Yes. That was your one of your first, right? That was my first film, yeah. The first film. Yeah. Uh, plus... There are some interesting parts of your backstory, which I know I'm sure everybody talks to you about Miramax. Oh, yes. And Uh, Harvey Weinstein. And working for Harvey, yeah. You were an assistant to him. I was an assistant to him for one year. Yeah. Yeah. But I worked at the Weinstein. I worked at Miramax and the Weinstein Company for several years. Six years. Six years. At least for my research. That's right. That's right. And we make sure to fact check absolutely everything. No, that's correct. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say that's like 2000 to 2006. That's right. Or 2001 to 2007. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. God, you guys are good. <laughs> well, we try. We try to be accurate. And I will, there's so much to get to. I want to talk to you about being in the writer's room, how you get to that place. Um, you have a backstory. You grew up in Maryland. Yeah. That's I was right. telling you how much I love your voice. Thank is you. that the Maryland accent a little no, bit? No, I think this is just like maybe smoking too much when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and Quit. you were in Do Catholic. Smoke. It's very. You were bad in an all girls Catholic school. All girls Catholic and school. And you smoked. Yes, I was a. I was a. Were you wrapped cliche. on the? Okay, I was you a walking were? cliche. So did the, like the, the nuns take you and yep, skirt rolled up, the whole thing, smoking. Drinking the whole thing. Oh, <laughs> I was so a bad girl. Did you want to get into this business then? Did I you did. have dreams of this? Yes, I always wanted to be a writer. I just kind of, I actually saw myself taking more of the path that that you're on. Or one of the reasons that I worked at Miramax, Miramax and the Weinstein Company for as long as I did was I kind of thought, oh, maybe I'll be a producer or something like that. I never thought being an artist was even an option to be because of what. Well, mostly I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to make a living. I really did have this fear. Yeah. You know, before the content boom, there really was this fear of like, if you're not like wildly successful, then you're not going to be able to make uh, be, being an artist or being a writer a nine to five job, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I really find myself to be 
in in a, a moment in our industry where there are a lot of opportunities for creating content and being a creator, but also specifically a lot of opportunities for women um, and being a queer woman. Like it's kind of uh, phenomenal that I get to do what I love at this particular um, time frame in Hollywood. I really count myself as being extremely lucky. The number of women who are involved in Hollywood still on a director and screenwriter level, oh, still, still yeah. small. Yeah. However, the numbers are going up. There was this recent report from the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film. Women directors, female directors, up 4%. Female writers, up 6%. Oh, good. At historic highs, but women still comprise 33% of directors. Right. So you're yeah. still a third yeah. of the mix, but Gosh. the number is going up. Where did that change begin? Have you felt it? I have. Oh, no, I absolutely have. I mean, even when I was making Bachelorette, my first film, like the tenor in the business between then, which was about 2011, 2012, to now, which is like, you know, six to seven years later, is completely different. I, I do not feel the same the opportunities are coming more, but mm-hmm. the prejudice still exists, if that mm. makes sense. How does that manifest itself? You just <laughs> it's a lot of little micro things, like just little things like, are you sure? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, like just mm-hmm. things that you're like, yeah, I'm I'm sure. You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> like it's like when you shoot, you do this thing called coverage, you know, which is like all of your shots and, and the shots are going to make up your scene. And so a lot of the times it is it does fall on you as the director to say, um, great, we've got our scene. You know, I'm happy with the performance level. I'm happy with the number of angles and I'm happy with the number of takes that we did. And so a lot of times I can feel that feeling of like, are you sure? Are you sure you have the scene? Are you sure you have it? Um, Another thing that'll happen, especially on independent films, was that I would feel a lot of pressure from either line producers or ADs kind of like we need to hurry up. We need to make our day. Mm. And like now I don't feel that quite as much. Now I feel like people look at me and they know that I am playing four dimensional shots in my head in terms of like keeping a happy set and also getting the scene and also making the day. And so I think there's uh, more respect for women in that particular role than there was, you know, six to seven years ago. Um, But it is like there's just it's just little small things, little small things that just make you feel like I have to reassess reassert my place here and um, and kind of take up that space at the table. Yeah, I was going to say, have you changed? I think back to early in my career and to your point about the various people that surround a reporter, for example, a journalist to get can something only on air. Yeah. You have the camera, you have your crew. Um, these are wonderful people. But early in my career, I remember feeling that sense of being rushed, like, oh, are we going to be here all day? Yes. And Oh, if you so f- let that get in your head, exactly. it actually diminishes the quality of what you're doing. 100% it does. 100% it does. And I think that for me, I mean, listen, I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> <laughs> and you believe you know, in signs like, and importance signs, of signs. And like, you know, I'm my, a Libra. Balance. My, oh, beautiful balance. See, I wish I could be that way. I have the care. I, I absolutely have character defects of hypersensitivity <laughs> and emotional volatility. You know what I mean? Like, so if somebody says hurry up, I definitely go like, what? Why? Wait, are we going slowly? What happened? It, did I say something? Did they say something is everyone talking about me (laughs) like it's like that level of like so I had to really teach myself from my 20s into my 30s to be like okay don't take it personally someone's 
basically just looking for more information. So give them that information, look them straight in the eye and um, and take people at their word. If mm-hmm. they if they've heard you, they've heard you. You don't need to double check. You don't need yes. to you don't need to ask again. You don't need to, like, take care of people's feelings. Um, one thing that I've noticed, too, being a female director is that occasionally, whether it's an actor or uh, designers or producers, sometimes I've noticed or even financiers or studio um, executives, I've noticed that people are kind of more inclined to share their feelings or their fears with me where I'm kind of like, I'm not sure you would share this with a male boss, you know, like, or a male director or a male creator. Maybe you would, and I don't want to presume that, but it's interesting that people uh, assume that because I'm female, I'm interested in their journey and their emotions, and I'm not really. (laughs) Like, like, I'm not especially interested in what their feelings are about the scene or their issues are with other people. Like, I just don't care. I have Well, it's a lot to own. It's a lot to own. You are owning the project. Right. I'm holding a goal in my head yes. and usually other people's and listen there a lot of that does include people's feelings and people's um moods throughout the day and so on and so forth but there are just certain people that i've noticed are more uh inclined or i guess they feel welcome to take up that space in my day and i'm mm-hmm. like i don't know if like i were kind of a gruff male who was a little less who was less approachable yes. that you would be sharing this with me but but perhaps you would but those are the types of things that i mean i no one has been you know no one has said anything like outwardly rude to me. No one has said, you know, um, a derogatory comment about my sexuality or my gender. Like nothing like that has ever happened in my career. I I, I pride myself on working with people that are awesome and rad. Um, I guess with the exception of Harvey Weinstein, I'm realizing as I'm saying that out loud, but I think it's because I've, I've, I've blocked that out so much as a thing that happened in my life. But usually people are so kind and nice and ready for you to do a good job. It's just their own internalized misogyny or just the way that they've always seen directors behaving, that they assume you're going to behave that way. And when you don't, they kind of either question it, um, maybe they welcome it, maybe they're happy you're not mm-hmm. behaving that way. It kind of just depends on what their own experience is. But I think to your piece of advice uh, that you've learned, this idea that you focus on the end game, whatever that is for you, right, and not getting caught in the second guessing or the interpretation of where people are coming from. Right. Um, I personally feel like I've learned that more through my career and I'm very thankful that I'm at this point now where rather than spending energy and time trying to figure out where someone else is coming from, if you take them at their word, then you can move on and, and focus. But if you spend time trying to rethink what it was that they actually meant or did I say it properly... That's energy that you're not putting towards something else. Absolutely agree. I always say this to the women that I mentor, the women that are working for me. I say, you know, send that EQ toward the project. Don't send it toward the, you know, the personal interactions behind the scenes. Like people will get over it. People will if people are angry, they'll let you know if you stepped on somebody's toes, most likely 95% of the time, they'll talk to you about it. If they're going to sit there and be angry, it's because they don't want to talk about it. They just want to be angry. And guess what? They're allowed to be. They're allowed to have their feelings. But, you know, And you're probably not going to change that, by the way. And you're probably, exactly, like, just let them be mad. Like, sitting there and being the emotional referee is not part of the gig. Like, it just isn't. And even if people are kind of expecting you to be that way, um, you don't have to be that way. And you don't have to take care of people's feelings. One of my good friends and an artist that I really respect Whitney Cummings brings this up in her stand up all the time. And I think she does it in such 
uh, smart and hilarious ways where she just points out, like, why are we taking care of people we don't even know? Complete strangers <laughs> we're taking care of. And it's like, you know, I think a little bit of a, of it is biological, but I think a lot of it is just the way you're raised and the culture that you're you're brought up in. And I think uh, Hollywood is no exception. It's just like any other industry. One of the things that I joke about, well, the hardest thing about working in Hollywood is that it doesn't see itself as an industry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like It's like people usually get upset when you treat your job in Hollywood as a job. Like when you're mm. like, well, you know, I'd like to talk to HR. Or I'd like to do this thing. Everyone's like, what? You know, like, are we all artists? And it's like, no, it's a job just like any other one. Like we're performing a service. We're serving bagels. Like we're taking out the trash. Like we're doing something that could easily somebody else could do. You know, like, so there are just as there are many Leslie Headlands out there. They just haven't had the opportunities that I've had. And I would love to provide those opportunities for those women the way that, like, Amy Poehler provided those opportunities for me, the way that Natasha Leone provided that opportunity for me on this show. It's like I would love to continue that type of, you know, giving back and that type of a community. But at the same time, I think we live and work in an industry that just weirdly thinks very highly of itself and kind of sees as everybody as artists and therefore not necessarily accountable in the same way that you would be if you were just a regular employee at a company. I love that. I read a piece in The Hollywood Reporter where you talked about in the early days the slamming door behind you. Oh, yes. In the writer's room. Oh, my gosh. Even I. I mean, I was absolutely that way. Because ultimately you were saying you knew that you were one of the only women. Exactly. And you were afraid that if you left the door open, then people would say, oh, we have enough women now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, even just recently, I recommended somebody for a job that I, I said, you know what, I, I you should hire this person. <laughs> they came to me with a job and I said, you should actually hire this person. I was like, this person is perfect. They're available right now. They they have all the things that you're describing that you need in someone. And again, there's this tiny little voice inside me that's going like, don't give up a job. Don't give up a job. Don't give up a job. Like if you give that to her, she wins and you lose, you know, and it's just like, oh, my gosh, where did that come from? <laughs> Like, Where did it come from? I think it it does come from feeling like you're the only woman in the room a lot of the times. You know, it, it was very different, you know, even, you know, like seven to ten years ago. Like being the only woman in the room is so different. Like it's weird to have worked on a show where we had a, an all-female writer's room. Like we had an all-female director's team. Like that stuff is bizarre. Like that is not the norm. And to have that kind of sense of um, camaraderie and that sense of like, Oh, yeah, we're just going to like, obviously, we're going to we're going to hire this woman that we totally respect. And we're not going to worry about whether or not that's something that's taking away from me. I don't know where it comes from exactly. You asked me a really good question. I'm not really answering. it. No, you're good. You're good. I think it might be internalized misogyny. I think it might be it might be trauma. It just might be feeling like I've worked so hard to get here. I can't I can't let my guard down in any way because if I do I will be taken advantage of Mm. all male um, writers rooms all male uh, company or male dominated companies like those things can definitely put you into um, this kind of immediate defense oh defense yeah yeah, of just like okay now that I've got mine you cannot come near it do not come near me like do not take me down I just think we could all afford it you know we could all afford a little bit more like empathy for people or like a little bit more support for people Um, I don't have to have every job. I don't have to take every opportunity that's offered to me. I can send those opportunities other ways, um, I think. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) I want to start back in the days where, okay, so you're in Maryland. You're in Catholic school. You want to do this. You go to NYU. I got into NYU, which was shocking. Yeah, that was shocking. Why? Because you didn't have good grades? I did not have great grades. I got in because I was an active, I was an active theater nerd. So all the theater nerds out there, 
Hang in there. <laughs> Hang in there. Keep going. Um, Gets my better. guidance counselor, quite honestly, just said to me, like, you don't have the grades to get into a higher level school. However, because you're so active in the theater program, if you audition for Tish, there's a good there's a good chance you could get in and then you could transfer to another place in NYU. So even though I didn't want to become an actor, I still did the audition. I went in. I got a placement at Playwrights Horizons Theater School, which is an, an incredible studio, studio at NYU. Um, one of my old assistants is actually also went to playwrights and I just went to her wedding over the weekend and it was all these play we just kept yelling like playwrights playwrights (laughs) (laughs) it's got um an undergrad one of the few undergraduate theater directing programs in the country and I just fell in love immediately I was like oh my gosh this is exactly what I want to do I definitely want to be a director but when I was you know graduating in the early 2000s, I thought, what I'm going to make, how am I ever going to make money being a theater director? <laughs> you know, like I just mm-hmm. kind of thought, how am I going to support myself? And so I kind of fell um, backwards into an internship at Miramax, which is how I started my, you know, assistant career there. And I read an article where you said something like you stayed there for too long. Mm. So take us Way inside of that, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are either in jobs where they're wondering if they're staying there too long or those first jobs, like, for example, I went into investment banking instead of journalism really? because, in part, I had a ton of student loans to pay yep. off. And I knew that becoming a journalist at $28,000 a year, I wasn't there was no fallback plan for me. There wasn't a financial safety net. I exactly. knew that I needed to figure things out. Yeah. No, that's, I was exactly, that similar exactly the same okay. way. Yeah. I just had that same kind of mentality of just like, I can't be a starving artist. Like, this is not something that, you know, I don't come from a family that can support me. Forever, You know, like they can give me some support when I got out of school. But I said, you know, I have to start working. I have to actually start working and making money to support myself, Um, not even to like get rich. It's just like I have to like eat. I have to live in New York. How am I going to like afford rent here? So that was the kind of thought process that I had, which was I don't know if I could give anybody like the advice of when to leave a job. But I will say this is that when when girls start working or women, I should say, start working as my assistant, I always tell them right at the beginning, I say, you're going to work for me for two years. And then whether or not we're getting along famously or, you know, it, it doesn't matter. I'm kicking you out of the nest. You've got to go out there. You've got to figure out what you want and you've got to start focusing on what your career is going to be. I I am more than happy to be, you know, the mother hen here and like introduce you to people and give you the experience of what it's like to be um, in this industry. And you can kind of take a look at all the different facets of it because I write, direct and produce and you can figure out what you want to do. But at two years, you gotta go like it's not healthy for you to stay here and continue to rely upon me for your entrance <laughs> into this in- industry you have to make it for yourself and I have to say that all all three of the women that have worked for me have gone on to become producers for other companies my my old assistant who just got married also just sold her first pilot to CBS studios like it's it, congratulations but, what's her name uh Claire Rothrock Shout out to Claire. Claire shout out to well Claire. Done. But like, again, you know, she was so scared. She was like, I don't want to leave. I love working for you. And I was like, I love you working for me, too. But don't make the mistake that I made, which is that because it's comfortable and safe, you continue working in the shadow of somebody else. You have to go out there and figure out what your voice is and what you are meant to do. And then send the elevator back down. Like once you get to where I am, make sure you start, you know, um, helping women the way that I'm, I've helped, you, hopefully, fingers crossed, helped you. So how did you end up working for Harvey Weinstein? So the way that it worked was that when the when the split happened, when when the Disney Miramax kind of Miramax, Disney. yeah, when that <clears throat> when all of that happened, they went off to start their own company called the Weinstein Company in 2000, I think it was 2006. Um at that point, 
the guy that I had been working for moved to a different studio. So I had this basically this option of I can go and do exactly what I just said that Claire should do, (laughs) which is like take the chance, start writing my own stuff, try to get an agent, start producing my own plays, which is all the stuff that I eventually ended up doing, or do what I thought was the quote unquote safe thing and take another assistant job at the Weinstein Company. And the one that they offered me was working for him personally. And I worked for him for about a year and then I left. (laughs) Was it terrible? It was not good. You know, I wrote a play about it, actually, um, that went up in 2012 called Assistance. And I really I, I at the time when the play went up, I think the the want when people saw the play, because it's a little bit like No Exit or Godot, where mm-hmm. you never see the boss. You mm-hmm. only see the pain and suffering that he causes mm-hmm. and then the pain and suffering that his staff inflict upon each other Um is that I think at the time people kind of wanted me to kind of take him to task a little bit more. But it's like, I'm not sure how I was supposed to do that, having, you know, signed the paperwork that I'd signed. And also, you know, he's still a very powerful guy in Hollywood and so on and so forth. So I kind of just decided to take a look at like that entire environment that that whole company was based on. And I think what's hard is when you when you have a culture of abuse like that, you're not really tuned into other people's abuse. Like you're really only experiencing what's happening to you. And it feels so bad and so upsetting that you aren't thinking, oh, it's also happening to the person next to me. It's Mm -hmm. also happening to that person that he's meeting with. It's also happening to um, the person he's on the phone with. You're only hearing, you know, the awful things that he's saying to you. You're you're only hearing that level of vitriol and that level of abuse. And so you don't really tune in to what might be going on with other people or other people that he's interacting with. And also, I have to say, like, I think the gender divide, like when you're sitting when you're when you're a woman being, you know, kind of verbally attacked by a man and there are other men in the room who don't say or do anything, it's it's very clear that like no one is coming to help you. Um, and that's what it was for you. And that's verbal how it, attacks. Yeah. For me, it was verbal attacks. I was never physically assaulted on that job. I didn't witness any physical assaults. But I, when I was contacted by Joey D. Cantor for the New York Times article, I was not surprised that that was the case, if that makes sense. Like yeah. I didn't have my own personal experience with that. But it's kind of it's the kind of thing that like once I once I moved out of the cloud yeah. mm-hmm. of my own kind of trauma and PTSD and was able to hear what she was saying to me on that phone call, I was like, oh, yeah, I would, you know, and I spoke to her off the record and offered to go on the record if I said anything, mm-hmm. you know, that helpful, mm-hmm. but I didn't hear back from her, I don't think. I don't think. Well, but it's it's a good point. And I think also, you know, you weren't junior per se, but you were junior enough in your career. Right. Where uh, that's just a, it's a scary time. Regardless of yeah. who your boss is and oh, yeah. how scary your boss is. Yeah. Um, and to your point about the play assistance, this I, I totally it all makes sense to me. And I'm sure that people yeah. listening right now, a lot of these things resonate with them and it makes sense why you behaved however you behaved along the way. Right. And I did say, like, oh, you're probably gonna ask me, like, how did I leave? I mean, like what yeah. I mean, I, I just remember very clearly the day I decided to go. I mean, the day that I you, you have to understand, too, people like didn't quit that job. Like you you didn't like everyone told you it was the best job in the world. Yeah. Too. Everyone said, like, this is the job you sh- this is this is how you get into this industry. And, you know, all of that verbal abuse was very normalized, meaning like other assistants bosses were also uh, not at that company, but in Hollywood were also like, 
you know, yeah, my boss yells at me. Like, you know, you know, like this is this is what we go through in order to get to the other side. This is the gateway into into entrance. And I don't like I keep saying I keep saying like entrance. What, what is that? That's not a real word. I'm going to stop saying it. But, th- you know, that's what I thought. I just thought this is he's the gatekeeper. I have to go through here. Yes. There's no other way. And what really occurred to me, I, ca- I, I can't I don't re- quite remember the exact incident that of when it happened. I just remember thinking something along the lines of um, what I put in, in the play assistance, which is like, it's like, I, there's a line in the play. I'm trying to remember the actual line, but I can't remember it right now. But like, there's, it's some version of my job is to be smaller than this man. Like my job is always like, like that's my job. Yes. Actually, that's what I'm being paid to do is to be smaller. And, and I know that I am bigger than this. Like there was something inside me that said, I am bigger than what I am doing right now. So in order to do that, I have to leave. Even though everyone's saying this is how you get what you want by is through this is through this experience, through this trial of I fire. There was just something in my head that went, you're never going to be bigger than him if you don't leave. And of course, there were a bunch of voices after that that said, why? How dare you think you could be better than him? You nobody's better than him. Blah, blah, blah. Like all of that stuff that like years of working there had kind of like conditioned me to think. But I just kept pulling that line. I just kept pulling on that like little rope I had thrown myself and pulled myself out of there and really kind of, you know, I mean, again, people didn't really quit. Like you just kind of n- didn't show Did up. Did you again. have another job? Oh, you didn't didn't show up again? You didn't even say anything. Hear more from Leslie Headland after a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you have another job? Oh, you didn't, didn't show up job. again? You didn't even say anything. No, 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 I did. I, I actually, most of the time, the way people quote unquote left that job is by just not coming back in again. Oh <laughs> like, you know, I don't want to speak for anybody, but that was the experience <laughs> that I had. But I actually just sent him a memo. Like, I, I, I said, I need to speak to you. <laughs> And then I said it in his inbox and like two days later, he was like, what do you want to talk about? And I said, I'm leaving. You know, I gave him notice. And he was like, OK. And I was like, this is a sign, you know, like, yeah, like, right. He's there not, was no fight. Too. There was no fight. It was yeah. just like, OK, great. You know, and and I do remember he said, um, if you if you need me, call me. And I remember thinking, I, I, I don't I will never need you, you know, like and, and I didn't. I he ended up buying his company ended up buying my movie, but I, I never called him. For that, you know what I mean? Like, for whatever reason, his company bought Bachelorette uh, uh, Radius, I think it was called at the time. They were doing like a, a VOD kind of thing. And so, but we we didn't speak again after that. How did you get your first writing job? So I started writing plays after. So after that, I didn't have another gig. So I just left with no money. How did you pay for your life? Um, I had saved up like 
a, a small amount of money. It was basically enough money to move out to L.A. because I assume I, I just rent was cheaper. I, I thought it would be easier to get a job out there. And the only promise that I made to myself was that I was like, you're not going to take another assistant job. Just mm-hmm. don't take another assistant mm-hmm. job. So I did all kinds of things. I worked at Amoeba um, record store for a while. I worked at um, Rocket Video, which is a video store in La Brea that's now closed. I worked in the service industry. I worked as a waitress for a while. Um, I did some coverage. I did some babysitting. I did anything anybody would do. Uh, anybody would hire me to do. The reason I didn't want to get like a a nine to five was that I wanted to spend nine to five writing. Yeah. So I would write during the day and I wrote, uh, I, I decided to write seven plays, one for each deadly sin. And I found this theater company that had just been formed by some old NYU friends of mine called I Am a Theater Company, which is still a theater company to this day in Los Angeles. They um, work out of Atwater and they just recently did the seventh play in that series, um, Cult of Love, which is the Pride play um, last summer, about a year ago, they did that last play. Oh, cool. So like after 10 years, we like kind of finally, you know. That you wrote oh, that 10 doesn't. years ago. Uh, no, I actually finished that one last year, but I'd finished all six of them in the first I guess if I went out there in 2006, then in those first four years of living out there, I wrote six plays just right. And we just put them up just back to back to back to back. When we did the one when we did assistance, a lot of industry people came. Um, and uh, that was when I started to and Bachelorette, too, which I ended up which ended up transferring to off Broadway. And then I ended up making a film out of um, those attracted a lot of industry people. And so I got an agent and I got a manager and I started to go to generals and then what are Somebody. generals? Oh, generals are <laughs> my my Claire Rothrock, another shout out, uh, and her writing partner, Ryan Weir, just went out to L.A. for their what I like to call the water bottle tour, which is that when you get signed by an agent or a manager, they basically call of all of their contacts that are development executives at production companies or studios and they ask you to take a general with the writer that they just signed so those people read your sample my sample was bachelorette and then you go in and you just have essentially a blind date with people like a like a a, an artistic date where you sit and you kind of talk about your experience you talk about who you are and where you've come from and you know i talked about my you know experience being an assistant but also putting up plays in the evening (laughs) and um and one of those turned into a job in a writer's room for a show called Terriers, which was created by Sean Ryan, who made The Shield, and Ted Griffin, who wrote Ocean's Eleven. And that was my first real writing gig, was writing in that room. Um, it was canceled after one season, but it was still a really great experience. I didn't realize that being a writer could, again, be a nine-to-five job. Like, I kind of thought, again, I thought of myself as this, like, starving artist who was, like, never going to make it off. You know, I lived on somebody's couch during all this time, like, because I didn't want to rack up any expenses. I didn't want to pay any rent, basically. (laughs) So my best friend, Melissa, and I... We lived in a uh, a studio apartment in um, in Los Angeles for, you know, about four years. And I just slept on her couch <laughs> until I got Thanks, a job. Thanks, Melissa. I know she's, believe me, I mean, she is like my guardian angel, like Aww. in so many different ways. She like, I, I just can't believe the women that like have been so supportive to me throughout my entire life. Men too, but you know, like, especially like people like Melissa that, that, you know, I remember why I gave her like Bachelorette and she just said, like, keep writing it. Just keep working on it. It's good. Was she a writer you know? as well? She's a writer now, but she was a stand up at the time. So okay. she so she definitely like and, and, and did more acting at that. But time. she had an appreciation for what's going to work. Exactly. She audience. was like, this is real. Like, this is real. She's like, this is this is you're speaking the way that women actually speak to each other. And she was like, and people are going to respond to that. And 
they're going to notice that. And I was like, really? <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I want to talk about how do you get an agent and a manager? Mm-hmm. And is that something that you have to have? I, I understand things have changed with the Writers Guild recently. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. everybody fired their agents, right? Everybody fired their agents. This is very inside baseball, so I'm sorry for anybody who's not no. totally into this this particular <laughs> topic. But So did you fire your agent I or did. have to? Okay, yes. so everybody had to. The Writers Guild said no agents anymore. Yeah. And you can Google why that is yeah, and all of that stuff. Look up Google. When you Google, look up um, David Simon's like letter that explains it. It's very informative and uh, filled with profanity, which is always really fun. You know, like that's really good. But back then, you had to have an agent and a manager, basically, to get into a writer's room with someone who had written for The Shield previously. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't think they were taking a lot of unsolicited stuff back then. I think now things are a little bit different just in the way that like content is created. Like This was all before or at the very beginning of YouTube. You know, It was before Twitter. It was before Instagram. Like It was before like a, a Twitter feed became famous. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. now I feel like it's actually easier. I was making plays in a basement and trying to like flag people down. You know, like I actually think now with all of the different platforms, Vimeo, um, uh, even even just social media platforms, mm-hmm. it's uh, there's a gr- it's a great way to very quickly get people um, look at my work. Look at my work. Here's where I'm performing next. Like these are these things like, you know, there's there's a way to connect people even if you don't necessarily have like the 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 check boxes of agent and manager, um, and as long as you have a lawyer, then you have somebody that can do your deal for you. So you don't necessarily need one. I would say I do think it's worth it to have one because there are people, um, especially my agents, who whom I really love, regardless of like you know. Uh, I mean, I stand with my union. So but regardless of all of that, they, they're great people. They're really, you know, they've been very helpful in my career. But I don't think that in 2019, like my first step, if I were starting out, would necessarily be to like flag down an agent or a manager. I wonder if I would be like, you know, um, you know, even shooting is shooting things is easier now. Like you can basically make films with your iPhone, you know, yeah. like you, you know what I mean? Like, yes. It's like, like you could do. I mean, listen, it's hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say it's easy. It takes a lot of work, but you have the resources if you're willing to put in the time. If you're willing to put in the time, I'd say like to people who ask me whether how to get an agent or a manager, how to get representation. I say make your own content first. Yes. I say the same thing in my business. Really? Yeah. Is it the same? Well, I think it's the most important thing is you can make your own content now. So own that. If that's if your desire is to be sitting in your position or my position reporting, start doing it. Yeah. Don't wait for somebody to say that you're good enough to do it, like start doing it. Give yourself the practice, the oh, time to do it. I totally agree. I'm also one of those people with the Malcolm Gladwell, like 10,000 hours of practice thing. Yes. I feel like it doesn't matter how great your agent is. If you haven't been doing this for 10,000 hours, you're going to show up to whatever that job is and everybody's going to know. <laughs> so what is the writer's room like? Take us inside the writer's room. Oh, my gosh. The writer's room is really it's it's a very interesting thing because it's kind of an old school concept, which is like a, a brain trust that that is not necessarily it doesn't necessarily lend itself to peak tv now which is a little bit more like the world of like the david chases and the vince gilligan's and the um and the shonda rhymes and that you know like it, it's like we have these giants who are auteurs in their own way you know so i think if you've 
if you're younger, you may not even understand like why writers' rooms would have started in the first place because you're kind of like, isn't Vince Gilligan just in charge of everything that happens on Breaking Bad? Like, isn't Matthew Weiner like just the guy, the Mad Men guy? You know. But initially, I think the concept behind them was you are making so much material, i.e., network television, twenty-two, twenty-three episodes at um, you know thirty minutes each, that there that you needed you know a staff Extra of hands. people to pitch jokes, to pitch storylines, to pitch character beats, to pitch new characters that were going to come in and complicate stuff um, and so on and so forth. And so that's how I kind of utilized it both on Russian Doll and definitely found that when we were working on Terriers, that was like a similar vibe was, you know, here's your assignment for the day is to come up with B stories for this particular episode or, you know, we've all read so-and-so's episode. So um, and we got notes back about X, Y or Z. So why don't you guys pitch on that for a while? You know, go away to your offices and then come back and pitch for a while um with a show like russian doll it it, it was much more like trying to fashion i guess like a four and a half hour indie film than it was like particular episodes so we were really utilizing the writers and how brilliant all of them were to um to help us problem solve what was like a pretty ambitious idea which is like if we utilize this um woman dies every single time yes. <laughs> every night like woman you know has a groundhog day edge of tomorrow type experience where she's working out her own existential crisis like what does that mean to you and what i really loved about having an all females writers room was that we got to kind of skip over the part where we explain. edit ourselves or oh, like explain yeah. you know what i yeah. mean like it's like we could kind of go straight to kind of the heavier mm-hmm. um issues that Nadia uh Natasha's character on the show might be dealing with and could kind of jump straight into that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. I think the harder parts were, um, for lack of a better term, the Black Mirror parts of the show or the um, magical realism stuff because I didn't have a lot of experience with that. Um, I'm mostly like a comedy kind of realism person. So um, it was really fun to utilize uh, the brain trust of the women that we had included in that room to go like, um, can you help us with this? Like, what do we do now? Like, what what do you think happens now? Like, what's the most important way? How do we challenge her? Like, how do we push her even further? Has she gotten too inert? Do we need to push her off a cliff? Like, <laughs> literally and figuratively, you know? Like, um, So it was really about um, utilizing those women and utilizing their life experiences to help infuse the show and make it feel realistic and authentic and at the same time very fantastical and fun. What's the hardest lesson you've had to learn along the way? The hardest lesson I've had to learn along the way is that whatever piece of work you, you know, piece of art you make, whether it's a play or, you know, something as as hugely satisfying and lauded as Russian Doll, or if it's a play in a basement theater, it's like, it's not really going to fill that hole that's inside you that's always moving to create more art so um and the thing is is that you feel like you want that if you're if you're a writer or director or an artist or visual artist or whatever it is you feel like you want to uh cover up you know you want to fill up that hole um and that's kind of what drives you but but truthfully success and failure are kind of um strange bedfellows like they're, they're not really the kind of catch all thumbs up from the universe that you're expecting when you put a piece of art out there. I think that's been the hardest lesson for me. I really did think that if I made enough money or if I had a successful enough show or if I had a a cool enough movie or if I was like on the lips of all the people in Hollywood, you know, that I would basically feel complete and that I would feel like I didn't need to keep working as hard as I was working. What I've realized in my mid to late 30s is that, yes, 
you know, that is my drive and that is the thing that pushes me. But I found that it's in the journey, not the destination, that I actually get the most fulfillment, um, which is not something when I was 25 that I thought I would ever say. Yeah. <laughs> I really rolled my eyes at people that said things like that. I thought, <laughs> well, you're just not working hard enough you know, like, or you're not cool enough or you're not famous enough or you don't make enough money. But like, I do think that those that 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 longing that every that little little girl lost feeling that every artist has, I think, is just something that's always going to be with us. And I think the sooner you can make peace with her, and I think a lot of what Russian Doll is about is actually making peace with that inner child and making peace with that pain, um, then you're going to be golden. You know, I think if you keep chasing some sort of like balm for that and if that, you know, the balm of success, I think I think I would just be a really miserable person. <laughs> I, I, I've spent a lot of time with your work and it happened. Thank I was you. having a baby literally at the very end of the podcast. I, I won't go into it, but I was watching Russian doll in the, um, as I was about to deliver. But anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, so, but you were saying with Russian doll, you had no idea it was going to be no. what it is. Oh, not at all. I mean, the response to this show is shocking to me. And it's not because I didn't think I thought we made something incredibly good. I felt like it was incredibly personal, both for me and for Natasha. Um, and I think in, for Amy as well, in some ways. But I think specifically because a lot of Natasha's life is echoed in the show. And I just relate with a lot of Natasha's life. And, and um, I relate with a lot with Charlie's character, Alan, like mm-hmm. a lot of his stuff was put in there that felt um, that it, re- it resonated for me a lot. So I thought people that are weirdos like me will like, it. <laughs> you know I mean? like and I thought I thought there would be, you know, a certain amount of people that found it um, exciting. But for people, especially critics and like popular culture to to recognize a piece of art as the thing it's trying to be in real time is just really unusual. That's like, I think even the people that I consider to be the apex, like the Stanley Kubricks are still people that are misunderstood with some of their projects. Like, you know, like for, for it to be happening in real time in that moment that people are like, oh no, we get it. Mental illness, trauma, like we understand, we got it. Like we got the tone. We understand that it's funny and it's also really sad. Like we get that it's video games and why and why that would be an appropriate um, analogy for, you know, an existential trauma loop. Like it's like, I'm just like, what? You guys notice all those things like when the reddit boards started to come up and say like this is what we think represents this thing i was like you guys are all right like you know <laughs> you're all correct we talked about all of those things like jason zinneman at the new york times wrote this whole long thing about how the show is about the east village and like the gentrification of the neighborhood and i was like yeah i mean it's not exactly uh-huh. a one-to-one but we talked like natasha talked to me about all i mean she's so much more knowledgeable about it than i am but like she talked to me about that for months before we started the writer's room and i was like oh interesting because we were like okay does it have to be in Tompkins square park blah, blah blah so and so forth and she went into immense detail about what the um what the history of that neighborhood is and the fact that he picked up on all of those things i would just it, it's that's what's really shocking to me in real time people understanding and and affirming that's shocking i'm enjoying it because i'm like this never happens <laughs> i'm just going to enjoy it while it happens yes well i think a lot of but you must the, have felt the audience way. is all enjoying it yeah, but you must have felt that way about the dropout as well though like cuz that was so so huge of that like people discovering and realizing and being like oh my god well the way i that was definitely the case but the way that we felt was every week we worried that that was going to be the week that people realized that it wasn't what they wanted it to be and we were we were working on the whole thing real time oh, that's so right. we were finishing each episode on 
Tuesday and they were going out on Wednesday. That was it, right, Taylor? It was Wednesdays. We would literally finish it the night before. And I tracked the final episode in this same edit booth um, on a Sunday and went to the hospital on Monday to give birth to my daughter and watched Russian Doll sitting (laughs) in the, um, well, laying um, in the hospital bed. So there's a lot of... What's your daughter's name? Isabel. Oh, my God. Isabel. Just I like Isabel. I have chills. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, it's craziness. It's craziness. Like, Why am I reliving yeah. the same 36th birthday over and over again? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, no, but it's it's such a phenomenal success. So congratulations you so to much. you. And you too. Oh, my God. Thank for, you. On everything. Let's just love each other. I mean, we, ma- we nailed it. 2019 <laughs> is our year. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> but what, and, and I'm 37 and you're uh, 38. 38. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what's the worst advice you got along the way? I can't think of a a specific moment, but I got so much feedback when I was in school and when I was first starting out as a writer and as a director that, like, basically I was too much. You know, like, I was, don't be so fill in the blank. Were you loud? So, I mean, listen how loud I'm being right now. We're literally sitting right next to each other. My wife is always like, you're screaming. I can hear you. (laughs) Everyone in my family screams. That's how I grew up. Is that how you grew up, too, with a really loud family? family. Like, you know, you just had to yell to get over. Yeah. I'm going to see them tonight. We're just going to all be screaming. I love that. Multiple conversations happening at one time. Exactly. Like, no one can really grab. You just have to grab a thread and go with it. So, in some ways, maybe you felt like, did you feel like an outsider when you came in? Yes. And so, did that outsider-ness sort of make you second guess when people were saying don't be so loud yes how did you take that well i just immediately would start to self-edit or or just self-hate self-harm self-loathe mm-hmm. like i just immediately turned that inward it never occurred to me to kind of go like oh that's that person's issue do you know what i mean like oh or i already know that about myself i get it i rub some people the wrong way but it's fine i'll find my people and move on with it i just was still in that immature kind of early to mid 20s place of, oh, I'm getting that type of feedback. That means I must be wrong in some way. That must mean that like I have to, ch- I'm, I don't have any other option. If you get that feedback, you just immediately change or you adjust yourself. Or if you feel like you can't make that change, and this is actually more often what would happen with me, is that there was a lot of self-hatred or self-harming that would come in the way, whether that turned up as like, you know, like the binge drinking that you do when you're in your 20s or like any of the stuff that's on Russian Doll, just that kind of like pushing people away and not letting them love you, like taking it out on the people around you that you know aren't going to leave, like, you know, any of that kind of stuff that just was so kind of toxic and awful. And it just, it never occurred to me when I was younger to go like, oh, when somebody says that to you, it's actually saying a lot more about them than it is about you. Um, And especially if they say it in an unkind way, because there is a very kind you know, kind of patient, tolerant way to give people feedback or to say, like, you know, I don't really respond when you do X, Y, or Z. Um, so I don't know why, if that's like a specific female thing or if it was because I wasn't, you know, I also wasn't out at that time. So I don't know if there was some sort of like, oh, oh. I get it. Like, oh, I'll just They're abs- reading this? Yeah. Do, I'll do just you absorb, feel like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just absorb this this um, this uh, criticism and just kind of take on that vitriol for myself and try to fix it in some way. And also, I think working for Harvey, like, that was also really hard. That's one of the things that was also really hard because it was not like a lot of people would say, like, well, why didn't you just leave? You know, and it's like because it's not like like most abusive relationships. It isn't always bad. Like there would be like you did a really good job. And then like, you know, five minutes later, you know, another, you know, kind of bam, you know, you're wrong. Bam, you're wrong. You know, like. Like you did that, you know, stop, stop doing that thing. You mess this up. You know, like it's just like you keep you keep thinking that, 
um, acceptance or that that kind of moment of like, oh, I'm okay, I'm all right is going to come. And it never does. You know, there's just enough of a carrot out in front of you that you keep showing up each day thinking it's going to be different, thinking that this might be the day that you get that carrot, you know, like and I think that in a way, even as I even when I left that, I I was still kind of carrying that idea with me. Like like if somebody says no to me or says like, you know, you're bad or if I mess something up, um, then it was like, oh, I have to immediately fix it. I have to immediately stop. I have to immediately make myself smaller. And now that I'm 38, I'm kind of like, well, number one, people don't say it to me as often because I think I've kind of found myself in a lot of ways. But also whenever I do get weird feedback like that or someone just doesn't like my work or, or you know, someone there's some troll online or something like that, I just don't absorb it anymore. I yeah. just don't take it on anymore in the same way that I used to. I kind of, you know, go to my wife and I say like, gosh, somebody said this thing to me today. Is that true? You know, like, or, I, or, I, or, you know, I crowdsource it with my support system. You know, like I say like, gosh, you know, somebody said something to me today and I, I don't think they meant it in this way, but it really reminded me of like when I was assistant and blah, blah, blah. Am I crazy or is this something I need to work on? And, you know, my therapist or my um or my friends or the women that I mentor I kind of like I you know I try to get as much feedback as I can from people that I actually respect and love you know and then I can be like okay this person has a point or oh they were just having a bad day or they ate a bad sandwich or whatever it might have been <laughs> Leslie Headland this was such a great conversation so great. thank you for joining me uh, thank you for having me I mean this is like I'm starstruck. I can't. I mean, I'm stop. I mean, I truly. That was like my favorite podcast. I I can't even believe it. Well, I just feel like they're they're just. Can I geek out for just a second? Sorry. I I just feel like I don't understand like why we don't take a critical look at women like that as more than we. I, I just, well, that raises a good point. Yeah. Because uh, you're talking about Elizabeth Holmes. Yes. And something that I heard when and I have only a tiny minute slice of this in interactions with various people in your role. Yeah. But something I heard a lot was that right now the way Hollywood looks at female characters is they have to be redeeming. Right. Or they have to be sort of the the good guys. Yeah. Because they've been played off as either the bad guys or the limited, um, you know, they've had such a small, finite role. Right. And there was a discomfort with Elizabeth Holmes because she seemed like she was going to be unlikable. Right, which she is. I'm sorry, but she is. But that's what I think is so fascinating about her is that I just, to me, what's so fascinating about women is not the ways that they, uh, listen, I think it's amazing when we transcend um, prejudice. I think it's amazing when uh, our voices get through and pierce through pop culture and all of those kinds of things. I also find it fascinating when we do disgusting, despicable things that don't make any sense. And I, I love digging in there in the same way that I love watching uh, male characters like Taxi Driver or um, – or I look at a person like Linda Tripp and I'm just like, why? What is going on? Like, what is the what is the thought process that that informs these types of decisions that you're making? I would love to get in there and be immersed in the beginning, middle and end of your character journey, even though you're, you know, a human, a real person, you know. But why not take a look at women like, like female characters? Are like there that? any female characters that you would love to dig into like oh, that? Oh, real life people? Yeah. My queen, Monica Lewinsky. She's my queen. She's my queen. She's my queen. I've never, when I saw Monica in Black and White, which is an HBO special on her that like is only available on YouTube, John Early told me about it, but I watched it like a couple years ago and I sobbed uncontrollably watching all, like just watching these like little 20 minute sections on YouTube. I could not believe the poise and the 
she had such poise while she was talking. It's really, if you haven't seen it, it's just her in front of an audience, I believe at Cooper Union, taking Q&As from the audience. And it's right after her gag order was lifted from um, Ken Starr. So she can finally kind of talk about what her experience was. I think it's like 2001 or something like that. And she can finally kind of talk about what her experience was. And I think at the time, she's like 26. And I'm like, this woman has such poise and such, she's talking with such thoughtfulness about Mm -hmm. this event that happened to her as well as her behavior during that event that I'm like when I was that age I and this had happened to me I do not know if I would have survived I don't know if I would have because I couldn't deal with people giving me feedback that hurt my feelings let alone somebody that lived through that level of scrutiny and that level of um I don't know what any other word for it except slut shaming. Like, I just don't I don't know. Having women turn against you like that on such a global national scale is something that I just see her now. And I, you know, read her book and I watched her her TED talk and and I just I tweet at her all the time. (laughs) Does she tweet back? She likes it. And I'm like. Thank you. <laughs> just retweet me. I'm just like, I just think, I think <laughs> she she's literally, I mean, I'm going to go as far as to say that I think she's a role model. I think she's a role model for women that um, that feel like they can never come back from being defined by whatever man was in their life and whatever trauma they went through with that person. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that that is, am- is amazing that I can, I, I would love to tell my daughter that story, um, which is what I always kind of think when I, when I take on a project. I always think think like do I want my daughter oh do you know what's the best advice I ever got yeah you didn't ask me this what is the best advice talk like your eight-year-old daughter's in the room when you're in a meeting when you're in a meeting and and it changed the way that I saw I mean yes you know like I swear a lot and blah 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 but I mean I didn't talk myself down I stopped going like oh that's stupid that's dumb do you know what I mean like or I stopped saying like you know I stopped agreeing with things that I didn't agree with like I started going like yeah if there's someone if she's sitting right here I want her to know how to behave in this meeting like you know like that was the best advice I best uh, business advice I ever got and then I started applying it to what projects I wanted to work on I'm so sorry we have to go no but I love it but that is great advice okay Leslie thank you so much thank you for having me Let's just do this every week. Please. (laughs) Okay, it is the end of the interview. Thanks to Leslie. And that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week, it is Gerilyn Rodriguez. Gerilyn is the co-founder and CEO at The Knowledge House. Here she is to tell you more. My name is Gerilyn Rodriguez, and I'm the co-founder and CEO at The Knowledge House. I always try to raise awareness about the challenges that women of color face when fundraising for their ventures. When we co-founded The Knowledge House, no one wanted to give us money. Funders said we didn't have a track record, we didn't have history, and so we literally needed to go nonprofit to nonprofit, school to school, and charge them per student fees to bring our program to them. And that's how we made money. I was able to uh, secure $150,000 in earned revenue and go back to those funders and say, guess what, we're making money. you give me a grant now? And so I always suggest to any entrepreneur, nonprofit or for-profit, make your product based on your customers and have earned revenue. Congratulations, Gerilyn. We are so thankful to be able to feature you here. And listeners, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Gerilyn about how she built her company. Also, if you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits Entrepreneur, you can send me those nominations at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. You can also shoot me career questions there. My team, like Taylor Dunn, my producer and I, we love hearing from you. 
And finally, a shout out to the team who helps make this happen each week. Like I said, my producer, Taylor Dunn, my trusty sidekick, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn. And thanks to ABC Radio. Listeners, I'll see all of you next week.